0: I saw it out of the corner of my eye. Normally, I don't think I would have noticed because I don't spend a lot of time in this room. But on this particular night, I happened to be sitting at the dining room table. The pitter-patter of the raindrops had been going for quite some time outside. And as night fell and the darkness covered and the cold winds blew, I was in the safety of my own home, nice and warm, and I decided to sit at the dining room table. There I had my papers and my books laid out. And in just a moment, out of the corner of my eye, I saw it. Quick, fast, and small. No, not a mouse. It was a water drop. I thought I had seen... Something that was out of place. So I waited and I looked. And sure enough, a few seconds later, another drop. Thank you, Chip. So I got closer. And I examined the ceiling. Sure enough, there collecting was moisture. And before long, another drop. I thought to myself, this is a rather strange occurrence. Normally it doesn't rain inside the house, but the rain was going on outside and it was long and strong. Then before long, more drops came coming down. I looked outside and I thought, well, I hope it ends soon. I don't know what to do. My father knows a lot about houses and construction and those things, but not me. He didn't teach me any of those things. My job is just to live. Live. Live in the stuff that's already built and trust that it was built well. Lo and behold, the rain did stop and I examined the ceiling. After a while, it was dry. So I thought, I guess, oh, well, (laughs) strange. Didn't worry about it until the next storm. And wouldn't snow it, same little spot, same little raindrop. Over time, you could guess what happened. The one drop became many, and pretty soon I had a bucket placed at the strategic spot on the days of rain. So I decided to do the next best thing, figure out how to stop this leak. First thing I did is I went into the attic space, got my stepladder, crawled, pushed the thing. I don't know if you guys have ever been up there. Um, some places have lights, most places do not. This was an older home, so I crawled up there, and you have to balance yourself on these beams so you don't actually step right through. And and the thing about ceilings is they're all pitched. So spaces start out big, but then get rather small. And so some of you are laughing because you've probably been up there trying to negotiate, but I could not find the leak. I knew in the ceiling where the place was, But in the attic I couldn't find. So next day after the rain had stopped, I went outside and this time I climbed the roof. And there I was looking amongst the shingles and I couldn't tell. I looked at the spot right directly above where the leak was and it looked solid to me. I even brought up a hose and hosed it down to see if that would work. Nothing. So then I went to my local hardware store and I began to look around and ask to see if someone could help me. And someone said to me, the leak could be anywhere. They said, in fact, water could be coming in on this side of the house, make its way across the beams and start dropping in the dining room and there make its puddle. The little drop became a hole and the little hole became a bigger hole. I went up to the roof and I mopped this stuff, this white stuff. It's some kind of polymer and I put it all over all the places I could. But the hole just kept getting bigger. See, and I never expected that when, I bought, when we bought our first house. I figured there would be problems that you could see. Windows and doors that may not close right. I, I never expected that you could actually break in to through, through a house through the ceiling. But apparently, it's very possible. In fact, it's one of the best places and easiest places to break into a house. And that's exactly... What they did. Please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 5. We are today in the book of Luke, in the New Testament, third gospel, the book of Luke, chapter 5. <clears throat> the Bible tells us that Jesus was one day teaching. That is one of Jesus' primary functions while He was on earth. He came to explain things. In fact, we heard, because we've studied here in the last couple of weeks, that Jesus' role was to explain His Father. To explain who God was. For you remember Jesus had said the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. See people had gotten confused over the course of time since God created the earth. Since God had revealed himself directly to his people. And by the time we get to Jesus in the earth's history, in human history. Humankind had gotten confused as to who God was. And so God the Father sent his Son To explain himself. And Jesus, one of Jesus' primary functions while he was on earth, was to teach God. To explain God. To reveal God. And so that's what he did. And so most of the time when we find him in the Gospels, Jesus is talking, he's sharing, he's teaching. And in this particular story, in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, follow along with me. Provide a Bible. Last week, if you were here, I urge you to bring a Bible. And this is your first week here with us. You're lucky. We have one right in the pew in front of you. So go ahead and crack that thing open. <clears throat> if necessary, blow the dust off and just get right to it. Chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 17. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. So let me just paint the scene. Okay, Jesus is... Uh, usually surrounding himself, as we discovered last week, watching him in the public eye, usually he surrounds himself with people that are a commonplace. Day laborers, blue-collar workers, and the like. But on some occasions, Jesus would find himself surrounded by people of a different stature. And this is one of those cases. Here it says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee, were sitting there listening to Jesus. It's important, okay? Now, uh, sometimes in your job, in your profession, you might find yourself in the company of those who also do your work. I don't know if that ever happens to you. Uh, for example, if, if, uh, if you're a doctor, if another doctor comes in to be seen by you, it's a little bit weird. Do you know what I mean? Uh, as pastors, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes as we're preaching and teaching, lo and behold, there's another, uh, you know, conference official, another somebody else that knows a lot about theology. In the last couple of weeks, I find myself finding only after church, there are some very significant people sitting in the congregation, and I didn't know. And if I had known, I would have been really nervous. Because those people know a lot about what you're saying. And sometimes you could get nervous. You know, what if you make a mistake? They would know. And here Jesus is teaching the teachers. Do you see that? Jesus is surrounded by Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now we've talked about this before, but just to paint the scene for some of you, in in, in Jesus' day, in in his culture, in the Jewish culture, there was average people... And above them was the ruling class. These were the Pharisees, teachers of the law. It was a a society based upon religious rule. In other words, though they were under Roman occupation and had civic codes, their daily life, their routines, their understanding of right and wrong, and their their legal system was based on their understanding of who God was. And the people who carried this out were the Pharisees. They were not only religious leaders, they were also like... uh, Law leaders, uh, lawyers, and, and judges and the like. So both civic rule and, and religious rule were combined. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was the ruling class. These were the ruling class. And there they were listening to Jesus. The Bible tells us that as they were present, there in this moment listening to Jesus, that the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. It's an interesting statement. We don't often find it described this way. Sometimes we just hear the story or see the story. But, but in Luke, in this particular instance, he describes the scene by letting us know that the power of God was around, was present. Have you ever been in the presence of the power of God? Luke says that the power of the Lord is present for him to heal the sick. And this is another thing that Jesus was essentially doing that. He was, as was discussed, meeting the physical needs of the people. And he was probably laying his hand on people and healing them. We know because we've studied this in the last few weeks that every time Jesus would encounter uh, someone with, with just even a small amount of faith, God would address their physical needs. And here, apparently, Jesus is doing, in verse 18, the Bible tells us that some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to place him before Jesus. Paralysis was uh, common in Jesus' days. The cause or the symptoms, I mean, the cause or the situations why someone became paralyzed could be uh, very different. It could be something that happened at birth or something that happened much later in life. But we find in the stories in the New Testament that paralysis was quite common. But in this particular case, this particular man had friends. And his friends were trying to bring him to Jesus. And they were carrying him on a mat. You've probably heard this story before, so this will be familiar. And the Bible tells us in verse 19 that when they could not find a way to lay him at Jesus' feet because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd. When I was a, a kid in Babyland, they'd have these felts. You guys have seen those, the, the, the felts? And then they also had these picture uh, scrolls, like, like, like that one, but the sun is round and... Uh, Anyway, and so the teachers tell the story. I really like it though. Where's Jack? It? It's very hi. I like it. And um they flip it over like this and then they, they tell nod your head if you've ever seen one of those. Okay, good. Okay, or don't. That's fine too. Um and, and, and then I remember when they would flip this and there would be this picture of this little house and, and there was like holes in it and they were lowering down with the I don't know, ropes or something, and the man was like laying on the side coming. You seen that picture? Okay. And I remember the visual and I remember the story as a kid learning about the man who came through the roof. Fascinating story. And and here we have these men lowering the paralytic down on a mat to place him before Jesus. And I began to wonder now as an adult, as I was thinking through the story, because as a kid, the roof is falling apart. Am I still on? Okay, good. The roof is falling apart. Wow, look at that. But I began to think about who his friends would be See, what we know from reading the New Testament is whenever we find somebody with disease or physical disabilities, they are usually friendless. Isn't that interesting? Because sometimes I think that even in our modern day, people with physical ailments or disabilities find themselves oftentimes friendless. The Bible tells us when he records these situations that oftentimes people with disabilities end up on the street or by the roadside, cast out from their families. It's, It's a theme that we've heard in these last four weeks. But this particular man had friends. Pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. Most paralytics found themselves at strategic places begging for money. They could not carry a job or, or conduct business. They could never be part of their ruling class because as I've told you probably a few times now that when somebody was sick or, 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 or had a disability, the culture believed it was a judgment from God that said, you, you're a bad person, therefore pff, this will happen to you. And so he could never find himself rising up the proverbial ladder. But this particular man, for some reason, he had friends. Maybe it was his winning personality. Or maybe it was that he became paralyzed later in life and had had friends to begin with. For whatever reason, we find that his friends decide to bring him to Jesus. And as an adult, I begin to process this and I begin to think about how this event could have come to be. Do you think it was him who said, Listen, guys, I want to go see Jesus. Or maybe it was just one of his friends who said, You know what? I've heard about this man. Let's go see him. But he had to convince three others at least to carry him on this mat. I'm not quite sure, but I know that it was probably not the easiest thing to do. It seems to me that they would have had to make a plan, come up with a, a system. Think this through. When you're caring for someone with disabilities, you've got to think it through. There are things, sensitivities, that you have to be aware of. And we find that these friends decide to bring him to Jesus and they carry him. But when they get to the house, this was not in the picture, but when you get to the house, the crowd is all surrounding the house. That's natural. Because whenever somebody sees a miracle or people are being healed, everyone wants a piece of the action. But there are also people who are just there to see, to watch, to look. Like the Pharisees and the teachers who are just listening. Now I can guarantee you they had the best spots because that's what you normally do to those that are superior. You, you, you say, R- come, come right in. You make way and let the superiors come in. And so as I'm picturing the scene, there's Jesus in the house, probably in the largest open area in the house, maybe the family room or, or the kitchen. I don't know what's the biggest place in your house. And, and there he's surrounded and the first circle of people are the important people, the Pharisees and the teachers, and then the businessmen and then others who have family histories or family reputations and so on and so forth. And then there's kids. And then there's just regular people on the outside and everyone's trying to get a peek in. And when they come, the Bible says that the crowd would not allow them in. It's a theme by now. You've guessed it. There's something about the way the crowd acts. And oftentimes, it is never in the best interest of those who need Jesus' help the Bible says here that when they got there and they could not find a way they went up on the roof and lowered him that's some good friends don't you think? I mean I, uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure how many of you I can convince to come over to my house and climb the roof because I think I've got a small leak, leak there too um, and I have a sign up sheet in the back in case any of you guys want to help me yeah I don't know how many friends I could convince to climb the roof maybe when we were kids but not anymore. But these friends are not only climbing the roof, they're bringing their paralytic friend on the roof. Now, I'm not sure about that plan, to be quite honest with you. I'm not really quite sure about that plan. I mean, if I was trying to help a paralyzed man, the last thing I want to do was drag him up to the roof. Right? It's kind of slippery up there. It's pitched, I'm sure. And this one looks like it has holes in it. I'm not sure about this plan. I'm not sure that they said, perfect plan, let's go up to the roof. But for some reason, they are so determined that this seems like the only alternative to get to Jesus. And I want you to just think for a moment, if you were part of the circle and somebody says in the circle of your friends, I got to come to Jesus. And you see the obstacles, maybe the crowd, maybe the situation, maybe the problem that they're carrying. And you say, what? Let's get onto the roof. Let's do whatever it takes. These friends say, let's do whatever it takes. And they climb up to the roof. And while Jesus is talking, while he's doing the important business of preaching, lo and behold, a man comes down. And I don't know how quickly, softly, and gently. In the picture, it looks like almost... You know, it's being like... I don't know, like, like an elevator bringing them down. But maybe he came... <laughs> it's a roof. It sounds graceful, but I don't think it was that graceful. And whatever roofing materials were there, they were coming down too. Straw, mud, adobe, whatever it was made of. It was coming down. But the Bible says that he got lowered down into the front of Jesus. And I just want to say in this very moment, thank God for friends. Thank God for friends who would do whatever it takes to help you come to Jesus. And they come down. And he comes down. And Jesus says here, verse 20, And when Jesus saw their faith, he turns to him and he says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Their faith? Making a hole in somebody's roof is an act of faith? Sounds strange to me. The whole plan sounds ill-conceived. But the Bible says that when Jesus saw the man coming down, He looked at him and He said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? See, this is this is my problem with Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day. If I was there... I would be thinking, who's going to pay for that? I mean, roof repair is kind of expensive. I just got an estimate. It is. I'd be thinking, what's going on here? Can anybody come through the roof? How do I get to the front? I know I'm not a teacher. Should I climb up and jump in too? Is that a way I get to Jesus? I might be thinking other things. I might be thinking about, wow, what happened to this man or what's the story? And Jesus is saying your friends are forgiven. But 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 the Pharisees only care about what Jesus is saying that contradicts their particular stance. Okay? Hang on to that thought for a second. The Pharisees look and they said, Who is this man that speaks blasphemy for who can forgive sins but God alone? And I just got done telling you that Jesus' role on this earth, by his own estimation, was to reveal who God was. And these Pharisees came to listen and came to see. But as you know, because you're a student of the Word, the one thing they could not accept from Jesus was this claim, that he had come from God, that he was God's Son. That he could act on God's behalf. And so Jesus turns and says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who is he? How dare he? Nobody can forgive sins. Not possible. It's part of a larger statement about what their beliefs are. Not just in, God's, uh, not just in Jesus taking God's place, but I believe in their estimation the idea that even God could not forgive sin. The Bible says that Jesus turned to them, and knowing what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in his heart? He turns to them and confronts them. But before we get to them, for just a second, pause for me and think about what it would be like to be the paralytic man. Have your friends go all out to get you to Jesus, and there you are, you just came crashing through the roof, and Jesus turns to you, and he calls you friend. Pretty cool, right? Pretty amazing. That Jesus, the Son of God here, the teacher of all teachers, turns to you, just came through the roof, and he says, friend, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's interesting that Luke records it this way because more often than not, Jesus does not refer to people in those terms. He doesn't use that term of relationship. He does later when he speaks to his disciples, but when he's dealing with people, he doesn't normally say friend. And this is important. It's important for us in this moment because I want you to know that in this case, there's nothing significant about this man that would cause Jesus to call him friend. See? Because if that's all it took, to have a disability and come crashing through the roof to be a friend of Jesus, that'd be kind of strange. That's all he's bringing to the table. He's disabled and he's making a mess. And Jesus turns to him and calls him friend. Do you know why? Because that's who Jesus is. And it doesn't matter who this man is. This statement is about who Jesus is, not him. And Jesus wants to call you friend, regardless of whether you have a disability or not. Whether you're a lifelong Adventist or not, whether you paint round suns or square ones, it doesn't really matter. God is not interested necessarily. He wants to be your friend. He wants to call you friend. And he wants to do this. Forgive your the Pharisees said to themselves, what in the world is going on? I found this whole story kind of strange because it, it, most of the time as theologians we're trying to uh, uh, take out this understanding that physical disabilities are connected to sin as, the, as, as in like God's punishments for sin. But in this case, Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, be healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. And, and it, that's why the Pharisees are upset and they said, who is this man speaking forgiveness? Who, who does he think he is? But there is a relationship, I'll have you know, between sin and physical pain. There is a relationship. See, we as Adventists believe in, in, in the wholeness of men, that there is mental, like a spiritual, relational, physical aspects to your life, and they're all connected. And what the Bible essentially essentially teaches us is that if we don't care for our physical selves, it'll affect our spiritual selves. And if we don't care for our spiritual self, it affects our physical selves. Did you know that? That's why we, you know, uh, invest in health education and hospitals, not just to give people medicines, but to teach them the relationship between their spirituality and their bodies. There is a relationship. And sadly, oftentimes as Adventists, we've forgotten it. We think it's separate. We think we can love God with our minds and do whatever we want with our bodies. And it's just not like that. There's a relationship. And Jesus calls it out right here when he says, your sins are forgiven. We don't know exactly, but he's making the connection. And the Pharisees are upset and Jesus says, Why? Why are you upset? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralyzed man and he says, take up your mat, get up and get on out of here. And the man did just that. You know the story and you've heard it. And he lives happily ever after, perhaps. Jesus turns, speaks words of healing, but do you know that the healing had already taken place? The moment that Jesus looked at him and said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees were upset. Jesus said, get up and walk. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things this day. When I heard the story as a kid, all I could think about was the man on the mat coming through the roof. All I could think about was being at Jesus' feet and having him say kind words to me. But as an adult, the thing that bothers me the most is the heart of the Pharisee. And this statement begins to haunt me. Jesus knew what they were thinking. When the event was taking place, the Pharisees thought in their hearts, the Bible says, Who is this man? And how dare he speak forgiveness? It's not like they said it out loud. It's not like they revealed it by writing it and putting it on, uh, on a piece of paper. They just thought it. But the Bible says that Jesus knew what they were thinking. And that just scares me. Because it appears that Jesus can know what I'm thinking. And he can know what you're thinking. This is frightening to me. I'll tell you why. Because I think a lot of us have grown up pretending to be something that we are not. And a good many of us have come to this church and we put on a persona, an outfit to cover up our true selves. And sometimes we do whatever we can to fit in with what the ruling class is and acts and behaves like. But inside, something else is going on. Some of us looked the part. We looked friendly. We're, oh, hello, happy Sabbath. How are you? But inside, when we look at this person, we're thinking something completely different. We might be thinking, why is he dressed like that? Orange tie and a black shirt. Who does he think he is? (laughs) We might be thinking other things like, yeah, you look nice today, but I saw you yesterday and you didn't see me at Target and you were acting a fool. We might be thinking things like, I know where you've been. I know what kind of guy you've been with. I know who you are. You can't fool me. We might be thinking about all the things that we see negatively in other people, but we keep them to ourselves. And we just say, Happy Sabbath. Lord bless you. But you know what? Jesus knows what we are thinking. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? So you're here. You're coming to church. You're watching the little pastor on stage. You're watching the people sing. You're listening at Sabbath school or where else. But what are you thinking? Because Jesus is going to address you there. Jesus is going to meet you there where you're thinking. Now, you can fool the rest of us, and I can fool you. But we just can't fool him. For Jesus knows what we are thinking. So here's the bottom line. The Christian experience, the life of Christianity, the life of being a Christ follower is not about the outside. The Christian life is not about who we appear to be, but it is about who we truly are. For man looks on the outside, but God looks into the heart, into the heart. Jesus knows what you're thinking. You're only fooling yourself if you don't realize that. But even there, after he knows what's going through your mind, he still wants to call you friend. He still wants to extend forgiveness to your life and your situation. He still wants to know you better. What an amazing Jesus. What an amazing friend.